You're listening to old-timey crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Amber. (laughs) We both opened our mouths like we were going to say something about Scott, and then we both paused. So you go ahead. Scott got fired. No, um... We no, him. <laughs> now, all right, listeners, see if you can find his body. Um, <laughs> it's an old timey crimey scavenger hunt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so none of that is true. Uh, Scott is a little under the weather this week, so he is taking the week off to rest and recover. And hopefully, we will have a Scott again next week to liven up the party. But for now, he needs to rest, and we love him very much. So, yes, we do. So send healing thoughts to Scott and, and Ariana and Ariana. Yes. And so if you are just joining us for the first time, uh, maybe, I don't know. Who knows? Welcome to Old Timey Crimey, true crime, historical. We mix them together and it's fun and interesting and uh, sometimes it gets a little weird. So welcome. And we also have filthy words. We have quite a case for you this week. It's a case that then somehow extends into other cases, so we'll have a little bunch at the end there. But first, uh, don't forget our Patreon is available. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And we have our old tiny crimies that are available. We did one this week on three unsolved murders from Vermont. And it was really interesting because we were in Vermont for the main episode. So I stuck there for the tiny and I told Amber all about this case and it was fascinating. Hi, Vermont. Hi, Vermont. We're all about you this week. And so, yeah, our Patreon has those and some other offerings. So go check that out. And also don't forget to check out our social media, Old Timey Crimey on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Detectives by the Decade. And, oh, hey, friend of the show, Chris Garcia. Uh, I am also on his podcast called Short Story, Short Podcast. So lots of options if you want to hear my voice, like, all the time. And we are also on his Zoom meeting right now, whether or not he knows. (laughs) (laughs) He does know. I made sure of that. (laughs) So, yeah, there is all that stuff. And I think that's... Merch, Redbubble, uh, find the link in our show notes if you're interested. That's all my bullshit. I just want to dive right in. How do you feel? Let's dive on in. All right. Let's talk about Paula Jean Weldon. So first, I want to settle us into our main locale. This is Bennington College. It started out as an all-girls college founded in 1932, By 1940, it was really starting to make a name for itself. And actually, Buckminster Fuller, noted architect, systems theorist, author, designer, inventor, and futurist. That's straight from Wikipedia, because I forgot to look him up before, so I did right before we started. He was all the things. (laughs) Yes, and I knew knew he was an architect, but I didn't know about all that other, other stuff, so I'm glad I looked that up. He was a frequent visitor. The school would eventually become co-ed in 1969, which I'll go ahead and make the Scott joke. If you're going to become co-ed, what better year? Really? No, that's true, though. What better year to be co-ed? Right? <laughs> I can think of a couple <laughs> ways to celebrate or one in well, particular. It's 1969. Let's let the boys in. Yeah. 
so the main hall actually that we're talking about there's a a dorm room that our, our central actor here is, is staying in. I looked it up a little bit. It's still standing at Bennington. It's Dewey Hall. It's one of 12 colonial houses that were built with the original campus. Now, these sound pretty nice. They have hardwood floors. The living rooms have fireplaces. They also have full kitchens. And some of them have like a it really depends on what which house you get. You might get a courtyard. You might get a porch swing. You might get a piano. That is fancy. That's real fancy. Yeah, you you were in my my apartment my sophomore year of college. It was nothing like that. There was no piano. I spent more time with you when you were at college than I spent when I went to college. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yes. And I actually got kicked off of campus when you were at college. <laughs> you did, in fact. And you were still in high school. <laughs> yes, that's okay, though. So some, <laughs> some notable alumni of Bennington, Betty Ford, former first oh. lady, right? I looked Fancy. At the, I wanted the dates to line up with our case. I wanted her to have been there at that time, but she was, she was before that time. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis, uh, author of American Psycho. Oh, mm-hmm. Alan Arkin. Did that line up? <laughs> nope, that did not line up either. He's, he's he's he was after that time period. Alan Arkin, an actor. Uh, Carol Channing, actress, and uh, Peter Dinklage, Tyrion from Game of Thrones. That that one didn't line up for sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. So uh, Bennington, the town itself uh it it is located in very southern vermont it's not very big the 1940 census had it at about 11,000 in population and robert frost is actually from this town we also have we have a couple of murderers who are around here at various times mary rogers uh she lived in the town and she was the last woman legally executed by the state of vermont and then Elizabeth Van Valkenburg, she was executed. She was a murderess. She was executed in New York, not Vermont, but she did, uh, was either born or spent some time in Bennington. This was interesting. She was quite, quite a large lady. And she also had a broken leg at the time of her execution. So they had to get a little, they had to incorporate a little ingenuity. So what they did was they put her in a rocking chair and they carried that up the scaffold put the noose around her neck and sprang the trap while she was rocking away. That is picturesque. <laughs> it is in a very grim way. I've never known something to be grimly picturesque, but that's it. Cause you could very vividly imagine that like the rocking chair and the noose and then the floor drops and she's still swinging back and forth, even mm -hmm. without the rocking chair. Yep. I kind of dig that imagery. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So now to talk about Paula Jean Weldon. She was born October 19th, 1928. Her family was from Stamford, Connecticut, and she was the oldest of four girls. Her father was an engineer and architect and quite a prominent man. Her mother was um, a high school graduate. That's all. That's all they gave her. <laughs> Well, she was a woman, and at this time, they didn't matter. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Feels feels real good, history. Thanks. Hey, at least we're talking about a woman that went to college. That is true. We do have that. Uh, so she was she was breaking the barriers here. 
Now, she, Paula Jean Weldon was really into art. She liked to work with oils and watercolors and charcoal and pencil. And that was at the time her major, although she was thinking about changing it to something like botany or music. She also liked to play guitar. She, most importantly, did a lot of hiking and camping and was quite an athletic girl. She liked to go skating, biking, swimming, square dancing. I love that. Square dancing is on her listed interests. (laughs) I wonder how many times she actually went square dancing. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, you'd be surprised. First of all, they taught it in a lot of schools back then. They taught it at my school when I was in elementary school. <laughs> and there is a wonderful article on Quartz, which is QZ.com, titled Americans' Wholesome Square Dancing Tradition is a Tool of White Supremacy. <laughs> yep. So it was part of a coordinated... I'm just going to read straight from the article because this is interesting. <laughs> this is part of a coordinated campaign... A dance spiracy, if you will, to make square dancing the official dance of the United States in the hope that doing so would, quote, give square dancing and, and its related activities more visibility and have a positive effect on recruiting new dancers. Henry Ford was scared of jazz, so there was that. Um, there, it's a whole article. It's too long for me to really go into, but it does have some roots that are a little less wholesome than appears at first. So, but like, I don't understand why is square dancing the official dance of white supremacy? Do they like dance in a swastika pattern somehow? <laughs> I mean, with some of those dances, you know, dosy dough. So but- from now on, we're just going to pretend that square dancing, you dance in the pattern of a swastika, and that is why. I'm happy with that explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Henry Ford, who was pretty anti-Semitic, wanted people to not go to the dance halls and cabarets. He wanted them to go to uh, liquor-free square dance clubs because jazz was the cause of America's moral decline. So square dancing would fix that. Jazz, and that's kind of a buzzword for, you know, who plays jazz? Black people. So that's essentially what's happening there. He saw these dances as intrinsically white and thus intrinsically more wholesome. So yeah, they basically, they, they brought it to. So, so he was a big racist and he picked square dancing over polka, which I find to be interesting, but like po- polka maybe is too enjoyable for him. He seems like an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of is. And then later it would, it would be, kind of revived some more by another square dance dude who a Colorado school superintendent. Now I'm sorry to this dude, but if you're going to be a a, a racist old bastard, the name Lloyd Pappy Shaw is the name you're going to have. Just saying. That sounds like the, the white guy that leads the militia, honestly. So like the name fits, the name does fit. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. So, yeah, I'll try to put this article up on the social media uh, and so that way people you can you can try to read it, but make sure that you read it the first time, because the second time you go to the site, they, they try to make you sign up. And I don't have time to do that right now. So because I'm That's recording fine. an episode. So 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 we've learned that square dance, square dancers dance in a swastika and uh, it's because happy Shaw. Pappy Shaw leads militias and probably shoots uh, Boy Scouts. That is indeed Just, what we have learned. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1946, going back to Paula Jean Weldon, she is attending Bennington College. She's in her sophomore year, 
And in addition to taking classes, she also worked in the dining hall. Now, she did pretty good in school. She seemed just like a normal girl. She was 18 years old, average height, blonde hair, blue eyes, just just another girl, you know, in the crowd. Uh, Now, on Sunday, December 1st, now, college students out there or people with memories of college or flashbacks of college will know that beginning of December, if you're on a, a standard traditional schedule, it's exam time. Everybody's stressed. It's there's a whole different vibe in the air in exam season. I, I remember my freshman year, they had quiet hours and there was only one hour a day when you could be loud. And as soon as the clock struck, like it was nine or 10, I can't remember. As soon as the clock struck nine or 10 at night, the whole entire freshman dorm would just blow up with music and shouting. And it was insane. And then it, exactly when the hour ended, quiet again. So she does her breakfast and lunch shifts at the dining hall. And then she goes back to her dorm at Dewey Hall, where she lives there. Uh, she does have a roommate. Chats with her roommate, whose name is Elizabeth Johnson, for a little bit. And then she heads back out for a hike around 2.30 in the afternoon. She does go around the hall trying to get some joiners, but nobody really takes her up on it. Now, she and Elizabeth had actually gone on a hike three weeks before that. And they were out on the trail. It started to get dark. So they just like found a place somewhere near the trail to sleep and then hiked back out the next day. Who knows if that's what she intended to do or not, but she hitches a ride about 15 minutes after leaving campus from Louis Knapp uh, or Louis Knapp, a contractor. And then she's dropped off on Route 9. Uh, Knapp basically was like, well, this is my house. This is as far as I'm going. So this is as far as you're going. Bye. Good luck. And she had told him that she was going to the Long Trail, which is located near Glastonbury Mountain. And when he drops her off, she's about three miles from there. If she had any money on her, it wasn't much. And she was wearing, uh, reported to be wearing jeans, sneakers, and a red parka with a fur-trimmed hood. So pretty easy to spot, you know? Like, that's that's a bright color. Also a uh, gold Elgin wristwatch with a black band with the watch repairs marking 13050HD scratched inside the back case. I feel like that was from the the missing poster, which I feel like her father had a lot of influence on that. And I think that man had extreme attention to detail. Yeah, because that's really specific. (laughs) That is probably the most specific detail I've ever seen in any criminal case. Like we've never gotten the watch repair number. (laughs) That's pretty extreme. It's good. It's good to have those details that can help, you know, ferret out whether a, a lead is, is true or false. But it's also very, it's just surprising to see. Yeah, but also, like, I feel like if they would ever find her body or if she was robbed and somebody took the watch, it would be very identifiable, especially if, like, pawned or something like that. Yeah, there is that, too. It makes it really difficult for somebody to try to fence that or whatever, you know. So that's true, you know, and also it would be an almost immediate definite if her body was found, you know, you find that wristwatch, you found the the girl almost definitely. Now the wristwatches can go from one wrist to another. So there is that, but it doesn't matter in the end. Uh, Just spoilers. (laughs) So she does make it to the trail. She's hiking northward. There are people who spot her hiking. She even stops as a group and she asks them about the trail's length, which it is 272 miles long. And there are 166 miles of side trails, 
as well as 70 backcountry campsites. And this trail does, in fact, go all the way to Canada, as the, the last person she spoke to that day informed her. Uh, that was around 4 p.m. At some point, and I don't think that last gentleman was this gentleman, but it's, it's a little hazy. Ernest, go ahead. Ernie Whitman, he was the last gentleman. He was the last gentleman? Okay, thank yes. you. So yeah, he was with uh, a couple of friends and she asked for directions and he says, well, you know, don't go too far because it's going to get dark soon and you're not dressed warmly enough to, to do this at nighttime, you know? And the trail, it does go through Vermont's highest peaks. It's a pretty rural, rugged trail, but according to the Green Mountain Club, it is good for both novices and experts. And she's not a novice. Like I said, she, she liked to camp. She liked to hike. So she's, she's pretty much in her element. She's not just running off to the woods for the very first time. Yeah, but at the same time, when she left, her, when she left the college, it was 50 degrees. So she was dressed appropriately for that. But then overnight and into Monday, it dropped down to nine degrees with wind. Yeah, that some some articles did have the 50 degrees. I don't know what's more reliable, honestly. I couldn't decide. But I looked up historical weather for December 1st, 1946. And the high it said that day was 50, sorry, 41. Low of 14. Average temperature that day, something like 27 and a half. Now, granted, that was in Burlington, which is five hours north-ish, I think, and has, uh, it is the closest weather station that had historical data. So yours might be more accurate, but I can tell you the moon was in the first quarter phase with 47% visibility because I am a freak. (laughs) I love it. But yeah, it's hard to tell because even from, from you to I, it's a 15 minute drive, but it can be a 10 degree difference in temperature. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I leave my house when I would leave my house to go up to yours, I'd be like, well, I should put on another layer when I'd be perfectly comfortable here. It's always colder up there on the mountain. So yeah, she's going into the mountains. So it's going to be colder. Now I looked it up and sunset that evening. Remember, it's December. It gets dark really early. It started around 4.19 p.m. with twilight actually ending at 4.51. Because the time that they say sunset starts, it takes like a while for it to get dark after that. And the last she was seen was around four o'clock. And later that evening, it did start to snow and about three inches would fall in the area of the trail. After that 4 p.m. sighting, she was never seen again. Now, there are a couple of, you know, variabilities here. There was an elderly couple that reported that they were on the trail. She was about 100 yards ahead of them. She turned a corner and then they reached that corner and she was just gone. And the standard theory is just, you know, she, she kept walking north, but something happened. Whatever happened, happened. And we don't know for sure, but we'll, we'll get into theories because there's a lot now. But you know what? That one's weird because if she was just gone, it was already snowing. There would have been tracks on the ground saying where she went. That is true, but I don't think it started snowing until a little bit later. It was like oh, okay, that makes early sense evening-ish. Then. So it was a... a, a distance in time was a couple hours after the last sighting of her but you are right about tracks but the first people out there to go looking for her could have easily obscured those tracks not even with any malicious intention just tramping around not really thinking yeah so her roommate that night doesn't really panic she figures well paul is just at the library studying you know it's exam week like i said 
But uh, the next morning, when there's no Paula, then she starts to worry and she goes to the school administration. They check first with the school security office and find out that uh, Paula hadn't followed the standard procedure for if you're going to be out late at night or if you're going to have an overnight. Before you leave campus, you have to actually sign out if, you're, if, if it's going to be after 11 p.m. when you return. And then when you get back in, you have to sign back in, whether it's that night, the next day, whatever. Uh, she also doesn't show up for her classes on Monday. That's the day after the hike. So the school uh, also rings up the police as well as her family with the Bennington County Sheriff assisting the case. It took a little while for this information to make it around. And so they just knew that she wasn't there where she was supposed to. They didn't necessarily know that she had been seen on the trail. When she told her roommate she was going hiking, she wasn't specific as to where. So it wasn't until Ernie Whitman, who we mentioned earlier, he was actually an employee for the Bennington Banner. And when he saw Paula Jean's picture in his paper, he was like, oh, I saw her. So he went and told his story. And then there were also, after that, after the picture was publicized, you had several people who said they saw her. Although there is a possible theory that there was a woman in the area who fit Paula's description and some people might have actually seen her. But you know what? Like she was planning on going for the hike because before she left, she said to her roommate, I'm all through with studies. I'm taking a long walk. Yeah. So she was probably like, you know what? Like I'm going for a hike. Peace out. But it doesn't make sense to me that at 4 PM when she saw Ernie, she was still walking north. She knows damn well that sun's going down. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to get colder and possibly snow. There's a lot of things here that don't make sense to me. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. But I have, you know, freshman year one time, I just like left my dorm and went into the woods. Like we lived on a very forested campus. I just went tramping down into the woods and just kind of wandered around and I needed to get out. And I it's entirely possible that that was exam week because I feel like that was the stressful time. And it was snowy, too. I remember I was tramping through the snow. But I also, I don't know if, if where she grew up, Stanford. I don't know if she grew up in a, a particular woodsy part of it. But I grew up it, literally in the woods. You know, like my, our playground was the woods. We would go hiking and we would get lost. And then eventually we'd find a road and make it out. But we weren't hiking at night. And I certainly wouldn't have. So it's it's very strange. Now... There was a waitress in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is about 200 miles southeast of Bennington, who came forward and said that she'd served someone who met Paula's description sometime around her reported disappearance. And this uh, young lady was with a man who was around 25 years old. He was also not not nice. He was drunk. He was mean. And the girl told the waitress that she was trying to get to Bennington. And when she had gotten to Fall River, she'd had $1,000 on her. But now she had nothing. And the, the girl was not drunk. Uh, but the waitress is like, well, she seemed a little out of it. But uh, that, that never went anywhere. There was also a train conductor in South Carolina who came up forward and said, oh, I, I, I saw her on the train. That never went anywhere. You have, when you have a missing person pop up, especially if it gets a lot of attention, especially if they're blonde hair, blue eyes, it does tend to bring a lot of people up who think that they saw the missing person. And a lot of these leads tend to potentially overwhelm the actual leads that could lead to the discovery of the person. 
Yeah, because there was also uh, Abe Ruskin was a local taxi driver and he was like, yeah, I took a student to the bus station. Uh, it was a girl. Could have been. Yeah. Uh, there was a bunch of buses that she could have gone to Pittsfield or NYC or Albany or Burlington. And none of the clerks could remember selling a ticket because they sold t- like hundreds of tickets, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know. There could have been a girl, probably a girl. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it seems uh, it's just one of those cases where all these stories are just coming forward and it's too much and none of them are really helping anybody. And they're also getting false hope. So there is a lot of searching of the trail once they know to go there. The college actually closed for days so that students and faculty could join the search efforts in addition to the National Guard, firefighters and of course, her family. Altogether, there were over a thousand people searching, including 400 students. Except not her mother. Yeah, her mother seemed to, she kept a distance from the search. I think she was, my best guess, if, if I were in her shoes, I would be afraid that I would be the one to find something that would permanently stay in my, my memory as my last memory of my daughter, you know? Well, what I actually had was that she was collapsed with worry and was confined to her bed. Also, that could be me, too. <laughs> so <laughs> if I was out of the house, it would be the thing I said. But if I couldn't leave the house, it would be the thing you said. <laughs> but, I mean, they, they had three other daughters that were still at home. So she was actually probably home with her other daughters. Um, because at the time, they were, they were still quite young. They well, were, uh, there was one that was five, but the other two were in their mid to, to late teens. And they actually would join in on a later search that I'll get. To yeah, later 14 and 16. Yeah, the, the older ones, not the five-year-old, obviously. So yeah. I hope that's obvious. So what I like what they did here. They had, everybody had confetti. And they would sort of, you know, like breadcrumb it up here so that they didn't redo any area or uh, miss anything. So anywhere they went, they would drop confetti. Of course, I'm sure it wasn't like biodegradable. You know? That's what I was thinking. I'm like, that's so much litter on these trails. Yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking of uh, our, our, our friend Yuri when he. Oh, the confetti. <laughs> he loved confetti. And uh, one time he blasted some confetti at my old house. And years later when we moved out, it was still in the lawn. And I think there's still some in uh, Beast and Lisa's grapes. Okay. Okay. So no. So at your house, it was the confetti cannon. Yes, that's right. The confetti cannon. So it was basically like a giant potato gun loaded with glitter confetti. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at Beast and Lisa's house, it was a literal garbage bag full of red glitter confetti that he told me about while I was drinking, which is always a terrible idea. (laughs) And so I went and pretended to be like fucking drunk Tinkerbell and just running around the house, throwing handfuls of confetti and covering the sleeping person on the couch with it. And it's still in their vents uh-huh. 10 years later. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sorry, um, beast. <laughs> of the story is never tell Amber when you have confetti, unless you're in the house of somebody that you don't like. <laughs> or anything that involves fire or accelerants. Probably. Those are also, yes. Avoid yeah. those. So, <laughs> So yeah, there was there was also a five thousand dollar reward offered. Amber, any guesses as to how much this is in today's money? Unless you look, uh, I did not. I am going to say um sixty thousand dollars. Bam! Pretty close. Sixty six thousand six hundred and one. 
Yeah. So they're searching the ground. They also have aircraft, five aircraft searching from above, and they find nothing. They even get a psychic in on it, and she's like, hey, go check out that covered bridge. And what do they find? Nothing. So on December 15th, two weeks after she had first gone out for that hike, the search was called off. And Papa Weldon here is not happy with any of the the actions that have been taken, with the way this has been conducted. Now, Vermont did not have any state police at this time. So it was up to officials like the sheriff, the state's attorney, the state investigator. These were the people who were actually doing the investigators. And we've seen many times throughout history when you have multiple offices all in charge of the same thing, communication gets difficult, wires get crossed, or you know, messages never make it to the recipient. And yeah, it, it ends up with things being shoddy if you don't have really good communication or just one dedicated agency on it. So they actually did, at Mr. Weldon's urging, he got the Vermont governor to get the Connecticut governor to send in his state police. So this included both a state police detective, Robert Rundle, and a state police woman, Dorothy Scoville. They let a lady do things. Oh, no, really? It's so exciting when they let That's... us do things. <laughs> oh, gosh. And these two, they're really, they're very, very thorough in their search. So they're the ones who find out about Fred Gadette. Now, Fred Gadette was a lumberjack. He lived near the part of the trail where Paula was hiking. And when Paula passed his house, Fred Gadette was fighting with his girlfriend at home. He then got pissed enough that he's like, fuck it, I'm out. And he left the house for the night. And which story of his you buy, I don't know, take your pick. Because either he hopped in his truck and drove in the direction that Paula was going. And then we don't know what after that. Or he went to his shack, because everybody's got a shack, and he was alone all night. And both of these were stories that he told the police at various times. So we really don't know which of these it was or what to think. He was one of the last people to see her. And when police talked to him, they caught him in multiple lies. So they kept him in their crosshairs. They never really were able to name him as a suspect, they were, but they were definitely considering him as a person of interest. And... Two people came to the police with reports that Gadet had said he knew just about where to find Weldon's body. Like a hundred yards, a hundred yards, I think it was. Was it a hundred yards or a hundred feet? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was a hundred yards. Okay, we'll go with a hundred yards. Uh, like a hundred yards, he could find it within a hundred yards. Uh, but then when the police confront him about that, he's like, oh, I was just goofing off. I was having a lap. It was just, you know, chit chat. Everybody does this with their friends. They always say, oh, you know, that missing girl, I can find her body. And even though the cops are looking at me and this looks incredibly suspicious. Yeah, yeah, it's just a totally normal, smart joking. So nothing ever came of Fred Gadette because they never found any actual physical evidence to attach him to the case other than these stories that are never really certain which version is correct. Hey there, old-timey, crimey fans. This is just a note for you to watch this space on Saturday, November 7th. That's tomorrow, if you're listening on release day. We're giving you a sample of some of our old, tiny, 
crimey episode content that our Patreons get to hear every week. So make sure you watch out for that, give it a listen, and you can always come check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash old timey crimey. Just to make sure everybody understands, the episodes are tiny with an N and the show is timey with an M as in murder. So back to the show. Now, the theory also popped up that maybe Paula had run away. She left everything behind, so that was probably a no. And then some people said, well, maybe she was depressed and she went off into the woods to kill herself. And everybody else was like, okay, well, nobody has no problems, but she was fine. Like, she was okay. She, she didn't show any signs of real depression. And then there were still yet other people who said, oh, she seemed like really happy in the days before she disappeared so maybe she had a secret lover and they they ran off to canada you know there's just theory after theory after theory see like yeah because i had conflicting reports on that so the roommate actually said that paulo said she was feeling a bit depressed and she had not gone home for thanksgiving for reasons unknown Mm. but then in the days before she disappeared she was very very happy so, like, she was kind of like, well, whatever was going on is done being, like, an issue. So, I guess we're fine now. <laughs> yeah, that is really curious. You have all these conflicting reports and you have a possible, like, mental psychological shift that occurs. But, I mean, could it have just been she didn't go home for Thanksgiving because she was too busy and she was starting to get excited about going home for Christmas? You know, it could have been something as simple as that. It could have been something super dark and horrifying, like she was being abused at home. That's why she didn't return for Thanksgiving. And she had found somebody who was going to help her escape from this, or at the very least said that they were. And that's explained the you, you sort of, you know, euphoria shortly before she disappeared. So it, without more details, there's, there's a, a very wide range of possible explanations <laughs> from the very innocent to the very horrifying. Yeah, now, did you have anything about the three gentlemen? Oh, good. I don't think I have anything about the three gentlemen. Give it to me. Okay, so there was actually a, a camp called Hunter's Rest, right? And so they went and talked to William Lauzon, who, who owned the camp, and it was about four miles below the fire tower. So they, they did talk to him, and he said that he hadn't seen Paula, but he did tell him about three men that had passed through earlier on Sunday. He said that the three men were not dressed for the t- the trail at all. They were wearing suits, and one of them had left a suitcase with him. Oh. So they did not return, and the, the investigators looked through the suitcase. They found out the names of the three men as J.W. Carroll, William Watts, and M. Golder. And then the camp owner said that there also used to be a deer hunter that had disappeared from his camp the year before hmm. by the name of Mitty Rivers. Oh, yes. Mitty Rivers is one of the, the others. <laughs> yes. So, so it was the same camp. And the guy's like, I don't know. That kind of happens on this trail. But let me tell you about these dudes that were a little weird. So I guess that there was a report that these three men were seen again. They had spent the last weekend at a camp near Glastonbury. They had already been questioned 
John Proud of the Adams Clothing Store has said he sold clothes to a man on Saturday afternoon. The man was with two other men that said they might be going hiking and that they were a student of the uh, photography school in New Haven. So, so these three men were like seen again. They have like descriptions of them being with either Paula or the other woman on the trail that was a little taller, but looked a lot like Paula apparently. So they're not sure which lady they were with, but I guess they did check out because they didn't seem to question them anymore after that. Well, whether that means they checked out or whether that means somebody dropped the ball, it seems like it could, it could go, go either, either way because it kind of just disappeared after that. Yeah, I kind of feel like there's a ball dropped there. Not that I'm saying that there's any certainty that that was a lead, but I feel like it's a lead. It could have been a lead that you followed to the end instead of just being, you know, I, I feel like there's more to it. There's more to that story, whether it's nefarious or not. I don't know, but I feel like there's definitely more to that story. Nobody is going hiking in business suits. Yeah, that's that's very strange. There's some weird behavior that I want an explanation for. So three men in suits end up with the girl, putting the girl in the car. It could have been her. It could have been the other girl that might have been her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's way too many. There's question marks and red flags all over this one. Yeah, so that, that was just like a whole bizarre thing that just kind of disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> There were other theories that maybe she came down with some sort of injury-induced amnesia. Uh, of course, the natural theories, unfortunately, the natural theories, kidnapping and or murder came up or just got un caught unprepared in the elements. But the thing was, is that they hadn't found her. You know, if she had been anywhere near the trail at that period in, in, in time, they would have found her on the trail or near the trail, you know, in their search. So even getting caught in unprepared in the elements doesn't mean your body disappears, you know, yeah. does, especially in the winter time, your remains are not going to degrade that quickly. So there are some possibilities there. So December 15th, they had given up for then, but then in May, 1947, almost six months after her disappearance, nine teams of searchers, spread out uh, on the trail. Each team had a woodsman at its head. And then uh, the, the second day was supplemented by 60 National Guardsmen. So this was over two days that they did the search. And also her dad and two of her sisters, the old elder two, did join in. Her mother watched from a distance with binoculars and said, quote, hope can never die no matter how low you get. But I have to face that I may never see Paula again. And her father said... See, this guy comes out right out with it. Quote, I'm more convinced than ever that Paula met with foul play. Okay. So the dad is a little weird. Yeah. Okay. So we had talked before about the waitress that had possibly seen her. When that lead came in a few days after she went missing, the dad, her dad disappeared to go pursue it himself. Yeah, that's For weird. 36 hours mm. he was gone and then he returned to Bennington. So this actually made a lot of people believe that he might have something to do with the daughter's disappearance. So then he turns around and he goes, no, it's a boyfriend. We don't know that she had a boyfriend, but it could have been a boyfriend because a psychic told me so. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. I wonder. We don't know much about his mental state before that. But I feel like with that severe attention to detail with the watch number, I mean, I'm not going to 
diagnosed. You want to know why? No, no. You want to know why he knew what the watch number was? Because it was in his damn pocket. (laughs) That he could have just had the damn receipt at home, Amber. (laughs) I don't know. I I, kind of think the dad did it because they were fighting. And then he's like, come for a hike with me. We'll make up. And then he makes sure nobody ever sees her again. But then why would she try to get other people from the dorm to join her on her hike? If it's going to be like a hike with your dad that you feel is going to be either like awkward or something. I did not have that in any of my sources. Really? I can't even remember which source I had, but it was right at the beginning. might have even been from one of the newspaper articles that I read. Uh, So Yeah, see, I didn't see that on any of the sources that she was looking for anyone to go with her. But I know that she she left supposedly happy and she maybe had a falling out with her dad before that. The dad is acting awfully suspicious. And then um, then he turns around and, and makes some mockery out of the police force. He's like, they're not even taking this seriously because they don't believe me that a psychic told me things. <laughs> well, he does get the uh, Vermont State Legislature to implement, actually establish a Vermont State Police Force seven months after Paula's disappearance. You know, he basically lobbied for this. Now, they had tried before, but the well, sheriff's... Yeah. His his big selling point was there was no records for the first 10 days of her disappearance. And that's what really got them. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't. The thing is, is that like any previous attempts to get a, a state police force were blocked by the sheriffs who felt that this would uh, kind of usurp on their power. And the representatives just thought that this was just a waste of money. But then when you're, you're faced with the father who doesn't know where his daughter is or you know not according to amber but <laughs> according to him and is upset at how the police forces worked and is very influential although it should be again reinforced he's not even from vermont and he managed to get this established he lives in connecticut <laughs> he lives in connecticut and he managed to get vermont to get a state police force you know i can understand that because i talked to a lot of people in connecticut and i can very much understand how they would end up getting what they want yep so in december of 1947 this is six months after the last search and a year after her disappearance there's a a tourist camp in charleston south carolina and there's a girl down there who gives her name as mary louise garrett she's just down there camping but the owner of the camp insists that this girl is a ringer for paula jean weldon and he reports this to the police. There is a lot of hubbub. The entire time this girl is like, I'm Mary Louise. I'm from St. Louis. And they're like, that's really weird that your name would be Mary Louise from St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Denton. Denton, yes. A dentist named Denton on our tiny this week. So the lieutenant with the local police down there, he's like, well... She and Weldon are the same height. They have the same complexion, same scars, same teeth irregularities and fillings. And to add to the confusion, you had at Bennington, Mary Garrett, a woman named Mary Garrett, not the same one, who worked as the registrar there. So everybody was like, maybe she had amnesia and she that was the first name that popped to mind. And so she thinks that's hers or she took it or whatever. They keep this girl in custody for like two to three days. Until finally they have her talk to Mrs. Weldon on the phone, who is like, this is, quote, definitely not my daughter, end quote. (laughs) So they got this woman's, this poor woman's hopes all up. And then finally she talks to this girl on the phone and she had to have gone crashing back down. 
Now, do you have anything else on this particular case on the, the details of that? Um, I actually am laughing at my own notes because hmm. <laughs> I get a little loopy sometimes. So um, in the theories and, and you already got to a bunch of them. Um, so like I basically wrote the theories and why I don't believe them. So she succumbed to the elements, like maybe she got hurt or whatever and, and had hypothermia. I'm going to say no right away because she had a red jacket and in hypothermia, you would strip your clothes off and end up running around naked before you died. Somebody would have found at least one of those articles of clothing. Yes. Yes. Second, she ran away. She didn't take anything with her. She didn't take her money with her. She had an uncashed check from her parents that she left behind. So if, if you're, if you're planning on running away and starting a new life, you're going to take anything that's going to be useful to you. Or at least something. You don't go with absolutely nothing. You might be trying to travel light, but you're at least going to take money. Yeah. Um, the reportedly depressed, maybe she committed suicide. I'm not buying it. I'm just, yeah, I'm just I'm not buying it. it. I, I don't think that that's the way anyone would, would go to die is like to find a cave to slit your wrists. in. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, she was murdered. That's definitely a possibility. I mean, she's alone. She's pretty. It could have been a crime of opportunity. But at the same time, I think there was something like oddly deliberate about where she was going and why. Um, but this is my favorite. <laughs> the Bridgewater Triangle. Yes, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. I just want to make sure you didn't have any details about this specific case. No, but I, I do want to write, I do want to read you my note right after this. Oh, wait, you, have, you have the, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Maybe she slipped between dimensions or was eaten by werewolves is actually in my notes. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay, so I just have a two quick details. This is still an open case today. And because of this case and also one other, some people now say, don't wear red while you're hiking the long trail because it's bad luck. So one other thing, in 1951, Shirley Jackson published the novel Hangs a Man. Uh, that's all one word. It was inspired by Weldon's case. It's a, according to Wikipedia, gothic novel, Bildungsroman. I, I probably pronounced that wrong. I never know if I'm pronouncing it right in my head. And that's probably the first time I've ever said it out loud where a young woman in college ends up basically kind of like losing it. She's having delusions at an all girls liberal arts college. So, but yes, this is not the only disappearance in the area. Uh, it, there's, it's been dubbed the Bennington triangle. Uh, there's a, a similar location. The obviously everybody knows the Bermuda triangle and there's also the Bridgewater triangle. Uh, that was in 1992 due to the series of disappearances that happened there in the 40s and the early 50s. And this triangle basically is Bennington, and we've mentioned Mount Glastonbury, and a town called Somerset. And uh, some people who believe this theory think that it is a window area where there's an interdimensional trap door. I like werewolves. I like werewolves too, but I kind of am kind of even more for the, the window area. It just it it strikes my fancy. So well, it's it's also it's actually been a hot spot for UFO activity, Bigfoot sightings, mm -hmm. strange lights and sounds. Uh, some of these stories 
date back to the 19th century. Native Americans actually regarded Glastonbury as cursed and avoided it because of tales of wild, hairy men. Wild, hairy men. We love them. (laughs) I need me some wild, hairy men. But yeah, so I'm going with uh, werewolves. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about- They like the color red. (laughs) Let's talk about this area and a couple of the other cases. Glastonbury is now a ghost town, but it seemed to be the center of of things, weird things happening. It was abandoned after coal and lumber boom died out in the early 20th century. In 2016, there were six people living there. Uh, And actually back in 1936, Ripley's Believe It or Not had a sketch of the Madison family who apparently were residents of Glastonbury and they were also its entire government. Ira Madison, his wife and his mother, of course, were women. We don't get names, uh, had every. They don't matter. They don't matter, even though they were all they were two thirds of the town government still don't have matter enough to get names. They didn't have a penis. And that's really what matters. That is what matters. Yes. Nobody is listening to us right now because we don't have a dick. <laughs> exactly. We're just talking into the into the ether. So, all right. So Amber <laughs> mentioned earlier, Mitty Rivers, uh, who disappeared in 1943. So three years before Paula Jean Weldon. Now, Mitty was 74. And uh, the, the stories go that Mitty was a hunting guide and vanished uh, on the long trail and took Four hunters around Hell Hollow. Come on. Yeah. Come on. What are you doing? Seems like an omen. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> which is in a southwestern area of Glastonbury and just disappeared. And so over 300 local folks, in addition to soldiers who were sent from Fort Devens in Massachusetts, spent eight days combing the woods and found nothing. And overall searches went on for over a month. All they ever found was a single rifle cartridge in the stream. Now, the one blog that I read had, uh, they actually went up there in more recent modern times and found some locals. And those locals were like, Mitty Rivers wasn't a hunter. He wasn't a guide. He didn't even know how to hunt. He just borrowed his brother-in-law's gun and disappeared into the woods. And their theories generally are that he maybe fell in a well or a sinkhole, which sinkholes, that's a way that a body could disappear. Well, a person yeah, but, is alive and then becomes a body when they die in the sinkhole. But somebody would see the sinkhole, especially if they're searching. If they're searching, probably. They don't just close back up again. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like, eh, I don't know. And, yeah. like, he's a person, not a dog. Like, when dogs get old, they wander away to die. People don't generally do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then it's weird, this disparity between, oh, this was a, an experienced woodsman and, oh, this was a person who knew nothing and just tramped up into the woods with a gun that wasn't even his own, you know? So. I, bet, I bet it was his ex-wife. <laughs> there you go. She's like, you know what? Let me talk a bunch of shit right now because he's not going to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> so December 1st, 1949, you had 68-year-old James Tedford. He was a resident of a soldier's home in Bennington. And now this was three years to the day after Paula Weldon vanished, December 1st. Now, he went, uh, prior to that day, he went off to St. Albans, Vermont, to see some relatives. Then he got back on the bus to head to Bennington, tossed his stuff on the luggage rack, 
And the driver and other witnesses said, uh, yeah, he was he was still on the bus at the stop before Bennington. But then we got to Bennington and he was just poof, gone. Shades of Louis Le Prince, which was the potentially invented the movie camera uh, and then just disappeared on a train in France that was he should not have disappeared from. Like, it was very strange. So, yeah, this is <laughs> very odd, too. One of the witnesses said he was ill at the stop before Bennington. And then a friend of his said, oh, yeah, I saw him in Burlington when the bus stopped there. He probably just got off there. But then why was his stuff still in the luggage rack? He was probably like at the stop being sick and they left without him. And everyone's like, no, he was here. I swear to God, we counted. But then what happened to him after that? They left him on the shitter. Who knows? He's probably, <laughs> like, He's probably still there today. He could be like, maybe he tried to walk back to Bennington and like fell over and killed over in the woods. Like he had a heart attack because he just got done shitting himself half to death. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Uh, In his seat was an, a bus timetable uh, open and just as if somebody had been looking at it. Now, if he disappeared between the stop before Bennington and Bennington, then it would have been within the triangle as it's supposed to be uh, on route seven. And the thing is, kind of adding to, to Amber's story, it was a whole week before he was actually reported missing. Yeah, nobody saw his ass on that bus. He was at the stop before Bennington, and then he realized the bus left without him, so he tried to jog to catch up and gave himself a heart attack. There were, there, even adding more to that, it was two weeks before they even did any interviews with witnesses, so... <laughs> I'm just bolstering your point, Amber. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, do you remember Strangers on a Bus two weeks after the fact? Yeah, I know. I know. Unless they tried to eat your face, you're not going to remember. Like, (laughs) Yeah. So, October 2nd, 1950. Paul Jepson, eight years old. Now, he's been acting a little weird the past several days. His parents have noticed he he talks about the mountains nonstop. He talks about how much he wants to go into the mountains. And so on October 2nd, he is with his mom. They're in a truck. He is wearing a red jacket. They are heading to the dump where she and her husband, they're, they're caretakers of the dump. And they also have pigs there have they're they're raising. So she's not, we can't make it smell worse. Yeah, it's a, it's already a dump, literally a dump. Add pigs, sure. Make some bacon. So the she his mother steps out to feed the dump pigs and leaves Paul Jepson in the car. She's out for about an hour and he he was just playing in the car when she left or the truck. When she returns, he is gone. Again, we have search parties. Again, they find nothing. This time they brought out the bloodhounds, which did pick up a scent and led the police to a crossroads and then proceeded to lose the scent there. So many people wondered if it was abduction. He was picked up in the car. You know, that was where his physical presence left the road and ended up in the car where the bloodhounds wouldn't be able to follow the scent. But also supposedly the crossroads was on the highway where Paula Weldon vanished. And then also there's the theory that um, his parents killed him and fed him to the pigs. Which is also really possible. And horrifying. Six. Hey, well, 
Yeah, sorry. No, it's <laughs> go ahead. Say, say what you're going to say. No, I was going to say, yeah, and horrifying, but I mean, yeah. it's a tradition, I guess, to feed them to the pigs. Uh, 16 days later, October 18th, 1950, Frida Langer, she is 53. She is camping with her cousin Herbert Elsner, and they decide to go out for a hike. Now, this is in the Somerset area. The population of Somerset, Vermont today is two. <laughs> but during the summer, you get about 24 people who come to their camps. So a uh, big population boom, and the locals don't like it, all both of them. <laughs> In 2011, one of these two year-long residents, the, the townies, the townies were interviewed, and he explained that he and his fellow Somersetian were both bachelors because no woman would stick around when there wasn't any electricity or phone service. <laughs> so that's today still happening, uh, or I guess so. Now Frida. She's she's not inexperienced out here. She's a regular camper and hiker, and one article calls her a survivalist. So what happens here is a little curious. She is loses her balance and falls into a stream while they're hiking. So she's like, okay, I'll go back to the camp. I'll change into dry clothes, and I'll come back up, and I'll meet with you here. Just stay here, and I'll meet back with you. Elsner hangs out. He hangs out. He hangs out. He waits. He waits. He waits. She never comes back. So he goes, and he reports her missing. She knew the woods. This shouldn't have happened. There were five searches performed over the next two weeks, 300 in the search party, plus planes and helicopters, and they find nothing. Until May 12th, 1951. She had disappeared the previous October, so it is like seven, eight months later. Her body is found in a place that had been searched plenty back in October, a completely open area uh, in a, a, near the Somerset Reservoir. And the elements had degraded the body to the point that they couldn't even give a time of death. So that one was the only one where you had a body found, aside from some, a couple of weird murders back in the 1800s. But it, it, these, these ones that happened in the same like five-year period... That's the only one where you actually had a body found, but it's still curious that they looked, people looked there and then all of a sudden she just appears. Okay. Now you said they couldn't determine a time of death. Could they determine a cause of death? No, I actually did say cause of death or I meant to say cause of death. <laughs> if I didn't oh. say cause or manner of death, I meant to. <laughs> okay. So they couldn't figure out how she died. No, they couldn't figure it out. The body was so degraded that they couldn't figure out exactly what killed her. Like, was it... You know, was it exposure? Well, we don't know because we don't have the parts of the body that we need to give us signs of that. You know, was it huh. strangulation? Well, there's not enough of her, her neck left. Although with strangulation, you could probably rule that out because it, if most of her body is gone, there's at least probably most of the bones and the hyoid bone in the throat is generally strongly affected by strangulation. So you're able to tell. It's, even it's if, not always broken though because if you do like a ligature and it's like not touching the hyoid it's not going to affect it we know scary amounts about this as a as a i in my defense i knew more about this before i started the podcast like i haven't learned anything new about this this is this is an old hat for me that's (laughs) that's that's not a defense (laughs) 
that's more of an indictment. <laughs> you don't even well, have an excuse I, of a murder podcast. <laughs> I, I just need to make sure that nobody around me gets strangled to death and I'll be fine. Yeah, good good luck with that. <laughs> make sure. It'll be a different manner. <laughs> so, oh boy. So these all happened, if you'll notice, around the same time of year, October to December. So that three-month span. And for a lot of them, the last time they were seen was around the same time of day, 3 or 4 p.m. Now, theories run from serial killer to alien abduction to a Bigfoot-like creature, which, as we know from previous stories, that could be killed, eaten, or just abducted and taken home to be the family pets. <laughs> there you go. Maybe so, they're all family pets now. Maybe they're all family pets. Uh, or maybe some kind of known mountain cat. Or they slipped into another dimension. Which is just really weird uh but so a couple i still like hairy wild men hairy wild men are interesting i'm going to tell you about a hairy wild man <laughs> so all right this is some of the the background of this area that makes you question you know what the hell was going on there and whether these vibes lasted into the 40s and 50s when these things happened so from way back there was some just weirdness there was what they called in the 1860s the wild man Boom. I'm giving you your wild man. I need it. And wait until you hear it because he's going to give it to you, Amber. He's going to give it to you whether you want it or not. God, I hope so. He supposedly (laughs) lived in a cave in Somerset and he would pop into Glastonbury and Bennington and expose himself to women. That's my kind of (laughs) guy. Maybe wave his revolver around something, what, but you thought I was going to say something else. Yeah, make it do the helicopter. (laughs) She's actually acting it out right now, you guys. She's actually (laughs) acting it out. Hey, if I had one, I would make it helicopter probably all the time. I don't doubt it. (laughs) So he would be, he was chased out of town eventually permanently by the locals, but there would be tales of the Bennington monster, who was uh, in appearance and action very Yeti-like, said to be eight feet tall, hairy, and in the early 20th century went on to attack a stagecoach full of people. And some people do connect him to the wild man. They say that after the wild man was exiled, he turned to cannibalism in the woods and would run around in animal fur. So maybe he was the one who was like attacking the carriage. And he was allegedly spotted in 2003 by a resident driving on Route 7. Amber, you're losing it? You're not <laughs> muted. No, okay, now, you're, now I can hear you. I, I wasn't muted. I was trying really hard not to make noises. So in my head, it's just like this hairy guy, and he's a little weird, and he loves to like have his pee-pee hanging out. And everyone's like, he's crazy. He attacks. And really, he's just like, can somebody touch it? Like, come on. <laughs> Oh Lord. Yeah, there is there is there's some weirdness there for sure. And in 1892, finally, last tale of this area. A mill worker in a town that is now a ghost town near Glastonbury. He murdered a guy, then he was caught, he confessed. And when he confessed, he also mentioned all the voices in his head that wouldn't shut up. So then he ended up in the asylum. But of course. He escaped in a coal car and local lore has him still living in the mountains over a century later. Ooh. 
So yeah, there's lots. This, this feels like an area that is steeped in history and lore and hints and whispers of the supernatural. There could be perfectly rational everyday explanations for all of these things. There could be perfectly supernatural explanations for all these things. And they don't even have to be connected. It just could be pure happenstance that five people went missing in kind of the same area around the same time of year and time of day. I'm going with serial killer. I'm sticking with werewolf, but I also want to get a party together to all wear red jackets (laughs) and go for a hike. And we'll try to make like a new Blair Witch. Oh, gosh. Actually, I feel like we should upgrade your theory to interdimensional werewolf. Interdimensional werewolf with his cock out. And also interdimensional werewolf is my new band name. And interdimensional werewolf with his cock out is uh, the name name of your sex tape. So all of these things, we're coming up with so many things. And also, Interdimensional Werewolf is probably going to be the episode title. <laughs> God, fact, I hope so. I'm going to make it so. I'm going to write it down right now. Because <laughs> it's just easier that way. <laughs> I am going to take a moment and pretend that I am responsible, because I am certainly not. Um, anyone with information about Paula's disappearance or any of the disappearances that we talked about should contact the Vermont State Police at 802-722-4600. Excellent. Yes, absolutely. If you know anything, if you've heard anything, if, you know, talk to your talk to your relatives and who knows, you never know what you're going to find out. I was uh, around a friend of the family uh, a couple of weeks ago. And this person told me just all of a sudden out of nowhere, they were like, oh, you like old timey murders? Here, let me tell you about three different old timey murders and all these other suspicious happenings that happened in the area where I lived in my 20s. You know what, though? Maybe that's like an old person thing. My mom has been really, really hooked on an unsolved murder from her high school. Hmm. So my mom is 70. High school was a long time ago. (laughs) Parents are weird. Yeah. I mean, um, hi. Uh, What do we do, Amber? What is this? We we drink, we know things, and we talk about murder. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) So, well, in this case, we don't know things because all we've got are, are, you know, bullshit about serial killers and interdimensional werewolves as our theories. No, I know. (laughs) You know, you know, it was the werewolves. I drink. I know things. That's what I do. (laughs) And your son flips me off. (laughs) I didn't know he could do that. I haven't taught him, but I'm also very proud of him. I'm I'm uh, glad I could be there for that step in his development. You're the first person he's ever flipped off. You'll have it forever. I'm going to make you a t-shirt. Woohoo! You know, I already have uh, beer glasses of your daughter flipping me off. I know. They're amazing. So this is going to be like a whole collection. (laughs) Should I make shot glasses of Max flipping you off? And then you can have your like, glasses. I'll have a set. Yeah, I'll make I'll make you all sorts of pictures of my kids flipping you off yeah. for like your, your beer set. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> all right. Well, what you doing this weekend? Uh I am making up things. So um like by the time that this airs, it'll be after the fact. But uh so I am not comfortable with trick or treat. And so I am, I have colored several eggs 
Mm. bright orange, and I'm making them jack-o'-lanterns. And so we're going to have a jack-o'-lantern hunt, and the kids will go and find all the the jack-o'-lantern eggs, and then they will, in return, get a prize when they trade with me. So the more eggs they have, the greater the prize. And um, and then we will go and probably um, trick-or-treat at just the grandparents' houses because they're around them anyway. Um, mm. But but nobody else. So we'll stop outside of two houses and be like, trick-or-treat. Yeah. Uh, just because we know they're already safe or already infected either way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're part of your um, bubble. Yeah, so like I'm trying to to make it so they still get to experience it, but without all of the contact. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think that's really good. I I really like your your work around there with the eggs. That's a really cute idea, and I think they'll have a lot of fun with that. So yeah, excellent. I think we all, we all have to do what we're comfortable with, and we have to you know sometimes we have to improvise, and I think that that's what this year is all about. It's all about improvising, and yeah. Oh! I was going to tell you something awesome. Oh, I want to oh. tell you something awesome. Sure. Tell me something awesome. My neighbor came to my door the other day mm-hmm. and um, I live in a lovely, lovely community. And um, she came to my door and there is actually a child in our little neighborhood here on the street that um, has an autoimmune disorder. Hmm. So she has arranged for a special trick or treat just for him. So he can trick or treat asking that all neighbors wear masks and he's allergic to peanuts, so make sure that it's nothing like that. And it lists his favorite things that he can have. And um, he has his very own trick-or-treat day on a day that is not the regular trick-or-treat day for him to come into different houses and get to experience it without having the exposure, which I thought was just amazing. That is wonderful. I love that. Yeah. And, and she gave out her personal number and she's like, text me if you're willing, turn on your porch light. We'll be around at six. And I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. Like I made him a special nut free treat bag, which is Aww. a weird sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. So I like, like I thought like- that was like a nice ray of sunshine and all this shit that's happening. <laughs> Yes, this all this shit that's happening is some of it does, you know, it brings out the good in people sometimes. And it's good. It to really see that, does. That we need I it. thought that was outstanding. Yeah, I needed that this week. So that was a one. Well, we <laughs> have our Halloween party every year and we have ever since I've known you since uh, for the past almost two entire decades. And this is the first time we're not having it. Um, but that is OK, because I am going to wear a part of every costume I have. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm sorry. I had a hair that was tickling my boobie. I'm not, I'm like kind of flashing you, but that's all right. <laughs> so good. So good. See, I'm going to wear like a, a, a part of every costume and um, watch a horror movie and that's it. Eat some candy. That's pretty much going to be Halloween this year. So that's that, you know, and, and it, that's fine. It, it'll be memorable if nothing else. So uh, you need to make it up next year. Just oh, we will trust me. It's going to be, challenge on oh my god it is going to be the halloween party of halloween parties next year (laughs) so but this year just a little more low-key and that's fine too so all right so that is our show for you this week we hope you have uh, enjoyed hearing about paula jean weldon and if you or you're intrigued by her if you know anything again write down amber's number that she gave and uh give the the vermont police a call and uh 
you know, don't don't wear red or maybe do. It seems like it would be such a good thing to do. You're more visible. You know, that's hunters wear orange and, you know, yeah. it seems like it would be wear better. Wear red but... and just make sure you have a GoPro because we want to know what happens. Yeah, yeah. And make a movie out of it. So, so thank you for listening to our filthy words. Remember, send happy healing thoughts to Scott to feel better. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are All That's Interesting, The Charlie Project, Bennington.edu, Wikipedia, The History of Bennington College, Weather.gov, Diana Formasano Willett on A Supernatural Condition, Chad Abramovich on Obscure Vermont, The Wilmington Morning Star from the Library of Congress, The New England Historical Society, and Strange Outdoors. My sources this week are thelineup.com by Gary Sweeney, historicmysteries.com by Doug McGowan, themorbidlibrary.com by Casper McFadden, unsolvedvermont.com, and strangeoutdoors.com.